Um, we're in a second to last week in a series that we've been in. We've got two more weeks left. It's a series called People of the Kingdom. And we've been talking about the characteristics of people who are members of the kingdom of Jesus. If we follow ourselves, call ourselves followers of Jesus, and then we're then in the kingdom of Jesus, and therefore we should live differently. There should be characteristics, or there should be dynamics of who we are that are different than those living in earthly kingdoms. And so we've been talking about sort of these core characteristics, and we've just got a couple of them left. In fact, um, in two weeks, we're going to kick off a new series in the book of Romans, like a 23-week walk through the book of Romans. But these last two weeks, I want to hit two really critical characteristics of people of the kingdom. And specifically today, I want to talk about what it means to be people of joy. What does it mean to be people of joy? And I want to start by reading something that Jesus said in John chapter 15. And then I want to ask you guys a question. So listen to this. John chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So question, does Jesus want you to have joy? Yes, right? Everybody can say that. Yes, right? He does. He wants us to have joy. And it's not just some sort of temporary, momentary joy. He seems to say that his desire is that we would be full of joy, that we would be so full of joy that we're overflowing, that people around us would experience joy because they experienced us, right? That's what Jesus seems to indicate. So another question for you. If Jesus wants us to be full of joy... Is it permissible for you and I to pursue joy? Yeah, right? It is. I mean, obviously, if Jesus wants it for us and, and we want it for ourselves, then it, the only logical conclusion is that you and I would be pursuing joy. This is something, this is like a good gift that God gives his kids. And so we should be going after this thing. But we have a problem, especially here in the West. And I know the majority of us in this room and most watching online, um, that characterizes us. We live in the West and, and we, live, we live in uh, a land in which the very purpose of life has really been boiled down these days to two things, the pursuit of two things, comfort and prosperity. That's what we pursue. And, and some would say, well, no, there's more to that. There's more like in our nation, um, it's more about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But let's think about that, the pursuit of happiness. This nation was founded on the idea that human beings have certain inalienable rights. Human beings have a right to life. Human beings have a right to liberty. And human beings have a right to pursue happiness. So when the founding fathers were drafting those founding documents, they literally said, you and I have a right to pursue happiness. They recognized something. They, they saw that deep down in the human soul is this longing for something that we refer to as genuine joy, pure happiness. There's something deep inside of us that needs the freedom to pursue happiness. It's part of what it means to be human. And if that's taken away from us, there's only one alternative, and that's this word despair. When a human being no longer has access to happiness, that human being will then enter into despair. And I want you to notice, I didn't say that we're happy all the time. It's just the idea that when there's no pathway, like when we look off at the horizon and we can't see any place where there's going to be joy, when we experience that, it, we fall into despair. That's the only place we can move. And so we have a country 
that was founded on the idea that we should be able to pursue happiness. And the question we might then ask would be, how's that working for us? How's that working? Are we happier? Are we better off today than we were yesterday? Are we better off today than we were two years ago? Are we better off today than we were 10 years ago? The answer for most Americans is a pretty resounding no. There's a lot of research right now. Just do a simple Google search on American happiness. Don't do it now. I know you got your phones on. You don't do it now. But if you do a Google search on American happiness, the news isn't very happy. <laughs> it's not very good news. In, in, in the past few years, numerous reports have been released that reveal this reality that Americans are not very happy. Prior to the pandemic, the LA Times printed an article. This was the headline. It said, Americans are less happy and there's research to prove it. That was before the pandemic peeled back this veneer of joy that we were living with. Today, we have more depression, we have more anxiety, we have more despair than maybe any other time in human history. In a recent World Happiness Survey, there was actually one done, it was discovered that people who are living in places in conditions that most of us in this room would consider deplorable, that the people living in those conditions were just as happy, if not happier, than the average American. So, in a nation where it is our inalienable right to pursue happiness, happiness is in sharp decline. So where's the problem? Is it in the pursuit? Is it in the chasing? Or could it be in the happiness itself and the way we have defined it? I believe that somewhere along the line, we decided collectively that the pursuit of happiness meant that I can do what I want when I want it. And what I want is comfort and prosperity. I want to be comfortable and I want to be prosperous. And I'm not sure that when Thomas Jefferson and friends were sitting around, that that's what they were thinking of. Like, oh man, if everybody could just have the right to pursue comfort and prosperity. But that's the way we've interpreted it in our day and age. I want it my way right away. I want to be comfortable. I want to be prosperous. But then there's a question, if you think about that and be really thoughtful about this, if you were to attain those things, would they actually produce genuine joy inside of you? And I'm not talking about a few momentary laughs. I'm not talking about fleeting emotions of happiness. I'm talking about something deeper. I'm talking about feeling something in your soul that says, no, I'm okay. Like maybe even some dimension of contentedness is what I'm describing, where you just know no matter what, like you're okay and life's going to be okay. Like will prosperity and will comfort, does that, do they have the capacity to drive joy deeply into your soul? Like, man, I am so comfortable these days that I have this deep sense of joy, right? Can it do that? Can it drive it into your heart? Can, can, can prosperity drive it into your heart? The real problem, as I see it, isn't that um, culture has gotten it wrong, by the way. Culture has gotten it wrong. Our society has gotten it wrong. That's a problem. The bigger problem, the real problem, is that for most Christians in the West and for Christianity in the West, we don't see it any differently than culture. 
Because if you live in a culture that says that a full, peaceful, and blessed life is defined by being comfortable and prosperous, then you start hearing Jesus say things like, I've come to give you life and life to the full. And because of the culture that we live in, we naturally interpret Jesus's words to mean, oh, he wants me to be comfortable and prosperous because that's the culture that's defined us. Let me explain it this way. Uh, In Waikiki, Honolulu, there's this canal that runs at the northwestern or northeastern border of the city. And, uh, And if you've ever been to Waikiki, you've probably seen this before. But in a beautiful place like Hawaii, there's something really unusual and out of place. And I want to show you this picture. Here's a picture of of this canal. And you notice that it says, no swimming, no fishing, contaminated water. Exposure to water or eating fish or shellfish may cause illness. It actually does cause illness. Anyone that ever usually touches that water with an open wound gets gets sick. It's, It's incredibly contaminated. And what happened was in 2006, there were a series of major storms that backed up and flooded the sewer system. And the mayor of Honolulu, just 2006, had to make a decision. Either we allow the sewage to back up into the high rises in Honolulu and do billions of dollars worth of damage, or I dump 48 million gallons of raw sewage into this canal that borders the city. And he chose the latter. So all of the sewage gets dumped in and all of the fish that are living in there They just continue to live and they breed and their offspring continue to move and live and breathe this dirty water. The water they breathe is dirty and they don't even realize this is just life. This is just where they live. And oddly, we do the same thing. We are conditioned to believe that joy because of the culture we swim in because of the dirty water we live in, we're conditioned to believe that joy comes from comfort and prosperity. But we don't come to that conclusion because of Jesus, we come to it because of our culture. And the worst day, about the worst day for any human being is when you've chased comfort and you've pursued prosperity and you finally get them and you realize, oh, they don't actually generate the joy that I was looking for. It's a horrible day. That's when despair is at its worst. And a lot of people have experienced this. This is why some people, when they experience despair, they make the decision, I'm no longer going to pursue joy anymore. I'm no longer going to do this. They believe it's a dead end. Um, They they say that if you want serenity in life, don't pursue happiness because anything you get joy from, it'll eventually eventually let you down. It won't last. And so so no matter what, it's going to disappoint you. And so the only way to survive is to decide to be disappointed and reject any sense of momentary joy that you might stumble on. That sounds very Portland, by the way, doesn't it? I'm just going to be Eeyore all the time now, right? But it's not a new idea. Philosophers have been talking about detachment for years. They say, don't give your heart to anything because you'll just get let down. And back in the 300, 200 BC, the Greek philosopher Epicurus developed a program that, that thought, oh, I, can, I can alleviate the world of anxiety. I can alleviate the world of despair. And so he gave um, four points of reform that we, could, that we could follow as people. And I want to give them to you. First one, he said this, do not believe in God or in the gods um, because they likely don't exist. And if they do exist, it's preposterous to believe that they actually care about you, that they're watching you, that they keep a record of anything you do. Um, and so he, he says, first of all, just don't think about there being any gods. Just, just forget that. And then secondly, he said, don't worry about death. He said, death is assuredly just oblivion. Like, you don't remember life before birth. You won't remember life after death. And so he's like, just ignore it all, right? 
It just forget about heaven, forget about hell, neither exists. And after death, there's nothing, zilch, nada. So just, you know, like be in the moment because there's nothing out ahead. So get your mind off of it. Step three, he said, forget about pain. Do your best to forget about pain because pain is either brief or if it's elongated, it probably means that death is around the corner and you don't want to think about that. So just ignore the pain, right? And then the fourth thing, he said this. He said, don't waste your time attempting to acquire luxuries whose pleasures are sure to outweigh, be outweighed by the effort required to gain them. So, so to summarize, he said, forget about God, forget about death, ignore your pain, and quit acquiring things, and the world will be a better place. Your worries are over, right? Just detach yourself from all of it, and you'll be fine. But the question, the real question is, even if that did work, would such a total detachment from life, from its large questions, from its daily dramas, would that constitute a life that's rich enough and complex enough to even be worth living? Would you even want to live that kind of life? And, and isn't Jesus offering us something more, something greater the, the way out of despair isn't just simply to question the system that got you there. The, the way out of despair is to question the very definition of this idea called joy. What is joy? Is there a version of joy that is distinct from society's version or even cultural Christianity's version of what joy is? Is there something, like, did Jesus come to give us something different, something authentic, something real? I believe he did. In fact, something as simple as his birth announcement in Luke reveals how different the joy of Jesus is. I want you to look at Luke 2 with me, verse 8. It says this. It says, that the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great, what? joy that will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I want you to notice the structure of this announcement. It's good news that this joy, almost like an object is how it's being described, like it's a box with a bow on it, it's being given to anyone that wants to receive it. This is a joy that is given to you. This is given to you like a gift and everyone can experience it. So that right there, when you see that, you realize this is setting the joy of the kingdom apart from the pursuit of happiness, isn't it? This is a different thing. Everyone, everywhere can have this joy. So that means that the composition of this joy, it has to be different, right? It has to be different. Or look at this with me, the apostle Paul. He's writing to the church at Rome. He said this in Romans 5, verse 2. He said, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice. Joy bubbles out of us. We express our joy in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice. Hope and joy bubbles out of us in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Notice what he says in verse three because it delineates the joy of Jesus from the happiness that the world speaks. 
Notice what he says. We rejoice in our sufferings. And just so we're all on the same page, when Paul says sufferings, he means sufferings, right? Suffering means favorable circumstances have gone away. That's what suffering means, right? Suffering means that there's a struggle. It might be physical. It might be financial. It might be relational. It might be emotional. That's suffering. Suffering is pain. And somehow this Christian joy, the joy of the kingdom, is somehow inclusive of circumstances that you and I would call suffering. You realize what the world calls joy is completely different than this. It's circumstantial. It could never possibly include anything where circumstances were less than favorable, and yet kingdom joy does. In fact, it's interesting. If you do some reading on happiness, and there's a lot out there, because we have a crisis in in our world today. We have a crisis in this country as it relates to happiness, and you'll soon discover that people everywhere are trying to put together like a modern formula for how How to be happy, basically. Like, what are the essential things to be happy? And as you look across all this literature, you'll notice there's a theme among five particular things, and I want to share them with you. They say this. They say, number one, you need need possession of the basics. So, like, food and shelter and safety. So, this is real base-level stuff, right? Not extravagant, realistic. Number two, this is prevalent among most of the literature, you need to get good sleep. Turns out good sleep, they think, makes you happy. Number three, have relationships that matter to you. Number four, take compassionate care of others and yourself. And number five, have work or an interest that engages you or interests you. Do you realize how hopeless this is? If this is the formula for happiness, then we have a problem. And let me just give you one reason why. Most of the people living in the world today don't have access to all five of those things. They might be lucky to get two of the, of the five. So what do we tell them? Oh, I'm so sorry, like joy is not in your future. <laughs> I'm sorry that you, know, you, you were born where you are and you live on the continent you live on because now you will never experience joy because these are the five essential elements of joy. Or, or how about this? Another reason, what happens when you and I lose one of these things? What happens when we lose the work that's meaningful? What happens when the relationships do crumble around us? What happens when we're not safe? Then we're utterly devastated, right? It's all circumstantial. See, being people of joy means so much more than this. In in fact, kingdom joy, it doesn't just maintain itself during times of suffering. It can actually grow and increase during difficult times. Do you realize this? And let me explain why. Um, First, let me do this. Let me, let me make sure that, that we're clear on the gospel because our understanding of the gospel becomes very critical in these moments. When you become a Christian, and I'm talking about a genuine Jesus follower, this is when the light bulb goes on and all of a sudden you say, oh no, I, that, that, this is essential that you make this understanding or this realization. You realize that your redemption, your salvation, your renewal is not based on your good works or your efforts. That's essential. That is a fundamental part of being a true Christian is realizing it is not about your good works. It's not about what you do. It's about the grace that you have received. That's a fundamental shift. And when that happens, 
ironically, there is a certainty and there is a confidence and there's a peace that comes over you as a result of that, right? Because you start looking and you realize God has done something for me. God has done something to me and in me. And it's completely apart from anything I could do. And that means I can't mess this thing up that much, right? That means no matter what I'm in right now, I can always look beyond my circumstances and say, God sees me and knows me and he's got me and his grace is sufficient for me. All other religions and philosophies operate on the opposite principle. They basically say, if you live as you ought to live, then God or then life or the universe will bless you. But if you believe that the reason that you're blessed is because you've lived a good life, that means you're somehow in control, right? And so now you're going to white knuckle it every chance you can because I don't want to mess this thing up. Or what happens when circumstances take place and they're outside of your control? All of that leads to a place of perpetual insecurity, right? You're going to be continually insecure because you never know where you stand or how you're doing. So every religion, every philosophy is basically built on that principle that what goes around comes around. But Christianity says something radically different. Christianity says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christianity says that we are daughters and sons adopted into the family of God. There's a sense of security in this, which means that there's a certainty that you have that you will share in the hope and glory of God in the days ahead, regardless of your present circumstance. And, and what happens is this. When you start to realize that, when you start to like conceptualize and understand this, when you hear it, when it starts to sink into your heart, when you receive it, it changes everything, including the worst of circumstances that you find yourself in. C.S. Lewis, uh, he wrote quite a bit about joy. His uh, biography was called Surprised by Joy. Uh, most importantly, though, he clarifies and identifies the source of Christian joy. And this quote that I'm about to read you, I think, is so important, so beautiful. Listen to this. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. He said, if you want to get warm, you, you must stand by the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy or power or peace or eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you will remain dry. What's he saying? Joy isn't found in your circumstances. It's found when we live and we move and we have our being in God. It's found in our intimacy with our creator. It's found in our closeness to Jesus. That's where joy is found. It's in the intimacy. It's in the relationship that we have. Not just the things we believe about Jesus, but the interactions we have with Jesus. That's where joy is found. In fact, if I were to graph out and say to you, like, like here is what joy has looked like in my life, and it has not been like a straight up into the your left, my right line. It has been this roller coaster of joy in my life. It ebbs and flows. It moves like this. And there have been times of great joy. And then there have been times when there isn't joy in my life. But if I was to also graph my intimacy with Jesus over that same time period, it would follow the exact same trajectory. I look back on my life and nearly every time there was great joy, there was great intimacy with Jesus. 
And every time there was a joyless existence, it's because the relationship that I have with Jesus had drifted to the back burner. It wasn't a priority. I wasn't focused like I was. I wasn't interacting with him. I was intellectually there, but I wasn't relationally there. It just tracks this way. Why? Because our joy is correlated to our intimacy with Jesus. That's where you experience it every time. Like John chapter 16, Jesus is comforting his disciples. The situation's about to get bleak and he knows they're gonna be freaking out because the cross is ahead of him. And in this moment, he says this in verse 21 of John 16. He says, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, the overflow with joy, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Why? He tells his disciples, because you'll see me again. Because the relationship isn't over. Because it's not done here. That's how you develop joy. You look to Jesus, you consider Jesus. And when you do, you encounter a God who sees you and listens to you and responds to you and knows you. The creator and sustainer of the universe will listen to you any time you want. Can there be any greater joy than knowing that God sees you, that he knows you, that he's gonna whisper things into your heart and into your soul and he's gonna listen to your prayers? There, there is something deep and satisfying about the certainty of God's attention and care and knowing that it's a relationship. Like, let, me, let me close with this. There's this moment in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Ezra has just finished reading the law. It's a really bleak time in the history of Israel. And uh, the people are devastated. They're grieving. And then Nehemiah, who is building, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, stands before the people in this really dark moment. And he says this, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. How many of you have heard that verse before? Right? A bunch of us have. Did it ever dawn on you that that was said during a really dark time? Like the worst of circumstances. And he says, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy. It's not just present. It's not just possible. But he says, no, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So like somebody comes up to you and they say, hey, what are you really good at? And you can say, you know, math, <laughs> right? I'm not, you might be, I'm good with words, not numbers. But you know, you can say, I'm, I'm good at sports. I'm good at leading organizations. You can say all those sort of things. But what Nehemiah is saying is that when someone comes up to you and they say, hey, what are you really good at? You can say, you know what? Joy is one of my strengths. I'm really good at doing joy. And that might not get you a job, right? but that'll make you a much better person to live with, right, won't it? Like, be really good at joy. Nehemiah says, no, this should be one of your strengths. So, if you're lacking joy, if your circumstances have just been beating you down, if you've chased pleasure and comfort and even attained them and come back wanting, there is a joy that is available just around the corner. There is a joy just ahead and it's found when we lean into Jesus, when we nurture that relationship, when we nurture the relationship, when we feed it, when we grow it, when we invest in it, 
When we take intentional time to pursue intimacy with Jesus, there is a joy that will rise up inside of us. And by the way, when that rises up inside of us, it doesn't just change us. It changes the people around us, doesn't it? I don't think there's a greater witness of the tangible, practical power of the gospel than the joy that is present in people of the kingdom. I just, I mean that. When your neighbor that you love down the street or when, when your brother-in-law or sister-in-law or when your coworker or your friend, when they, when they see you navigate just life and all the ups and downs and there is this deep sense of joy, there will be something they observe in you and they will say, I want that joy. There's no greater testimony of what God's doing in your life than having joy in less than favorable circumstances. Are you with me on this? So where is your joy? Maybe a better question is, where is your intimacy with Jesus? Because that'll indicate where your joy is. I was driving to our service Thursday night and I was just thinking about the message and um, this isn't anything I planned on talking about, but I was driving here. It's like a three minute drive from the gym to here on Thursday and I was in the car and I was thinking about where we are today. And uh, I was, last week I was in Florida with a couple thousand pastors in our movement and listening to their stories of post-COVID recovery as church leaders, realizing our church is thriving by comparison to most churches in this country. Most of my colleagues are seeing 30 to 40% of their people return to church and most of the others are just gone. They're in the wind. They don't know where they are. They're not at other churches. They've just disappeared. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about what we've experienced this morning, just life, drinking living water together. I was thinking about the joy of Jesus. And then I, I started thinking about where we are today right now as a culture, that here we are, we're in despair. And life is bleak and so many people are just like strung out and burned out and fried. And I was, I was thinking about the correlation, you know, like it was bad for the last 10 years. And I was like, well, what's been going on the last 10 years? And, and this, by the way, this is from a, the purest heart. I was just driving, I was thinking, you know, it's interesting because over the last decade, church attendance, church participation has just been slowly decreasing and joy has slowly been decreasing in America. Like there's this direct correlation. You can just watch it drop and you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then I thought about now and I thought about how desperate so many people are and I was like, man, I wish everybody knew. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying this, I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? You're here because you know, you know like, there's something about this. There's something about being gathered with a community of faith that supernaturally God enters into this and does the unexpected and he fills us with himself and his joy. There's something that takes place. But I say this to say, we have friends and we have neighbors and we have family members who are in despair and they aren't drinking the living water like this. And so if there was ever a time I was just gonna say, like for the sake of our nation and the mental health of people, if there was ever a time to just say to your friends and family, hey, come join me at church, I think now's a good time, amen? Like, let's raise the joy. And I, I imagine that if more and more people experience Jesus for who he is, we're gonna see the joy quotient in our culture go up and to the right. Are you with me? That's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> um, thanks for quenching your thirst today with Jesus. I mean that. It's important. Keep doing it. Would you stand with me? You guys are amazing. I want to pray for you. I want to offer a benediction. Those of you that are new with us, it's just a blessing that I like to pray as I send you into the week. 
Um, and oftentimes we hold out our hands to receive it. I raise mine to pray it over you. But may you be men and women who continue your pursuit of happiness by pursuing intimacy with Jesus. May you be delivered from despair. Some of you right now might feel despair. May you be delivered in this moment because you've heard the truth about your despair. You've heard the name of Jesus. And so may you be delivered from your despair. And may you experience his joy no matter your circumstance. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Hey, if you ever wanna pray with somebody, talk to somebody, we have elders wearing lanyards around here. They'd love to tell you more about Jesus or pray with you about anything in your life. So feel free to chase one of them down.